Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Opinion Podcast from The Times. I'm Philip Webster. I'm editor of the Redbox Morning Bulletin and the Redbox website. I'm standing in again for Tim Montgomery. In the studio today, we've got a star-studded Times cast. We have Susie Jagger, Deputy Foreign Editor, Hugo Rifkind, award-winning commentator and leader writer, and one of Fleet Street's doyens, Roger Alton, Executive Editor of The Times. It is six months since the Islamic State seized the Iraqi towns of Mosul and Tikrit. After the beheadings, Western U-turns over how to destroy the group and the resignation of the world's most powerful defence chief over America's failed to kill the terror network. Has there been any progress? A new daily newspaper has launched in Scotland. The National claims to be Scotland's only pro-independence daily and was endorsed on launch by the ruling SNP. Does this make it a valuable corrective to the predominantly unionist Scottish media, or is it a worrying Scottish McPravda? Labour's poll lead has increased since the weekend in three national polls, so the fallout from the Thornbury affair may be limited. But a poll in today's Times shows that it's training UKIP on who better represents the white working class. That, if nothing else, shows why Miliband sacked uh, Miss Thornbury. If Labour loses the working class, it's got nowhere to go. 
Right. So, Susie Jaggers, we, we saw that amazing press conference yesterday where Biden and Obama were virtually hugging Chuck Hagel and saying what a wonderful man and friend he was, while at the same time his aides were sticking in the knife and saying that he was absolutely useless and they've been planning his departure for two months. Does what happened yesterday show there has been no progress? I mean, it depends how you define progress. Certainly in the original definitions by the Americans, they failed because the original um, target had been to destroy ISIS and they quite plainly have failed to do that. But what they have succeeded in doing through US airstrikes over the last few months is to corral ISIS. So they've tried to and successfully managed to limit their geographical spread. And in some cases, they've led to ISIS having to uh, lose certain territory. That the original plan, though, had been that while the airstrikes were were trying to limit their, uh, their geographical spread, at the same time, there would be a massive diplomatic operation to try to develop a Middle Eastern coalition for the likes of the Saudis and the Jordanians to then send in some kind of ground forces and to then try and destroy them. But the the Middle Eastern coalition, such as it is, is hopeless. There's no coherence, there's no agreement between them, and they don't really know how to to run a sort of um, a, a cohesive uh, set of armed forces. So do we do we expect the the military action to step up under whoever is chosen as the new defence chief, or are we are we expecting him to be a a more diplomatic figure who can bring other countries together? Well, this is the key issue. On the one side, you have um, American defence chiefs, you know, various commanders, various generals, saying the only way we can do this is with boots on the ground. But the issue of sending American troops uh, back into the Middle East is so toxic. Even with a lame duck president, it would be quite foolhardy I would have thought for the White House to want to do that there's no appetite for that among the American people I mean one of the most interesting things about the Islamic State is that as its name suggests it is actually functioning as a conventional state it's not like a terror network so it means that it's quite um, it's quite fixed you know it has to has to operate for supply you know for for supplies for you know that the way that it 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 sets itself up actually as a, a permanent state and it means that that's that means it's quite vulnerable because it can't move in the way that a terror network can in cell-like structures. Um, so it's whether or not the airstrikes can can try to disband the state such as it is and force it into some kind of, I, I mean, I, it sounds silly, but a traditional terror network, you know, where they're living in caves mm. and, and fighting in a, a sort of um, on-the-ground kind of way. And are we doing anything much? I mean, we, we hear very little about what Britain's planning to do at the moment is that we have it's all gone very quiet on that for we us. have virtually no foreign policy the RAF is uh, has launched airstrikes in northern Iraq not in northern Syria like the Americans Hammond really doesn't have a coherent policy about how we would cope with ISIS we're all sort of hoping that the Jordanians will pull it together because Abdullah has already offered uh, to send in his own ground forces we we make various noises about aid and try to train up um, Iraqi soldiers but actually if you think the uh, Iraqi armed forces were only a few years ago trained and armed to the teeth by the Americans and yet they need retraining it's um, it's pretty depressing Roger Alton do you do you think this shows the wisdom of Britain deciding to have nothing to do with action in Syria and just keeping it very limited to Iraq well I've always, I've always thought that was a terrible mistake the vote in the Commons was it the end of last year or the mm-hmm. year before the end of yeah. last year when uh, there was a sort of putsch by uh, Miliband to vote against the measure, not asking to go to war or anything like that as, as with Iraq, but simply asking for the potential that you could s- have some level of intervention. This came in the wake of the very dramatic reports of chemical 
uh, the use of chemical weapons on children, notably in this paper by um, Anthony Lloyd, for example. And I, th I found that which then sort of set uh, the Prime Minister right back on his feet. So basically that destroyed any level of that foreign policy beyond going anywhere around the world with a few businessmen, which is what basically our foreign <laughs> policy is now. So the idea that you could do... Uh, uh, you could do anything. Indeed, you saw Obama uh, say, well, uh, the British Prime Minister's been defeated. Uh, there's no need for us to do anything. So his foreign policy became completely frozen. But it's a complicated situation because Syria is more difficult. You've got Syria fighting a bunch of people who, it's the Syrian uh, regime fighting a bunch of people who most of the time we quite like to be fighting as well. Most mm. of them are extremely nasty bunch of Al-Qaeda people. So whether you go into areas of Syria to essentially then uh, sort of sort of support an Assad regime which we've been um, uh, shouting about ever since. It does make foreign policy very difficult. I wouldn't like to be doing it, and I don't think Philip Hammond likes doing it, and I don't think William Hay particularly likes doing it, though the office is a very nice place to be. And Hugo, uh, do you think this is going to be an issue hanging around at, or having an impact on the general election when it comes next, May? On the general election, no, probably not, because there's no great sort of party split. I mean, what, what, confuses, what confuses me the, the, the most kind of sort of like looking looking forward and, and looking backwards is I, I still don't really know who the Islamic State is. You know, we talk about it generally, and we seem to understand it generally as if it's a bunch of sort of, you know, carpet-bagging, aspiring terrorists from High Wycombe, you know, who are generally running the show. And of course that's not the case. You know, it's... And I never quite understand how much it really is a multinational force, or how much loath as we are to admit it, it's really just a Sunni, Iraqi, Syrian uprising. Susie, maybe, maybe you know the answer to that. I think it's a rag bag, you know, like like any large um, large group. It's made up a number of a different of mm. um, of different factions. But does it has have as, as its bedrock actual domestic support from actual Iraqi, Iraqi Sunnis? Um, actually, no. I think right. that's a very good question because um, a, a large number we we know from certain documentation that um, that they don't. A lot of Sunnis have absolute contempt for the the the, the Sunni ISIS movement. And the interesting issues about that is that the sheer domination government in Baghdad has been, has failed to, to galvanize those those Sunnis who are not sympathetic to yeah. ISIS in, um, in, and, and to try to trigger some kind of so-called Sunni awakening and that's that's one of the uh, the key things is that uh, they've it's very difficult for the Shia dominated Baghdad government to do to go in and try to retake Sunni areas um, without the support of of the disaffected Sunnis but so I mean who are they if I can I mean are they are they largely what are they Egyptian are they Iraqi are they Syrian are they, I mean, obviously they're a bit from everywhere, but where are they mainly from? Um, I th our understanding is that it's mainly northern Iraq and northern and, and northern Syria. Right. But what's really interesting over the last couple of months, which I certainly haven't had the wherewithal to be able to predict, is the extent to which Al Qaeda factions have thrown from you know um, Al Qaeda in Yemen and in Algeria and in Egypt have thrown in that their uh, sympathies with mm. Al Qaeda and said we'll now fight with Baghdadi. Mm. So you do have this absolute hodgepodge of thrown in the sympathies with ISIS. With ISIS. Yeah. And so it, it is very much a, a hodgepodge of, 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 of different types of, uh, of people with terror sympathies. Can I make one? I thought uh, Susie's point that it's called the Islamic State, and this is quite a skillful piece of sort of titling. And I, in fact, funny enough, just been to Pakistan for other reasons, and that is, of course, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. So it gives a, 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 an enormous status 
just or, or a level of status just by, by your name. It's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and the West has sort of gone along with that, hasn't it? Mm. The West has allowed them to call themselves the Islamic State. It's quite interesting. We call them the Islamic State as well. And the, the amount of hand-wringing from um, not just this newspaper, but newspapers across Fleet Street about how we refer to them, yeah. almost as if we're, we're, we're giving them some kind of respectability by their title. I mean... Mm. We shouldn't care what we call them. This is a a terror network. Susie, last word on this. Uh, This is going to hang over Obama right through the last years of his presidency, isn't it? He's not going to escape from this. I I don't think so. I think this uh, he's desperate to um, to to create some kind of legacy for for his last two terms. And when he when at the beginning of his his first term, he'd said, we're going to basically we will pull out of Iraq and we'll we'll sort out um, Afghanistan. We will withdraw by the end of 2014. And he had said at the very beginning, if if there is a problem in the Middle East that require that um, is quote unquote solved by having an American flag on it that solution won't work because America is too toxic well he's just being dragged into a, the, the latest Middle Eastern problem and I think it's going to dog him right right through. Moving from uh, the United States to Scotland um, we saw at the weekend the launch of the new newspaper The National they launched at the SNP rally whether that was a wise decision tying themselves absolutely so closely to the uh, Scott Nats. What do you think, Hugo? Well, it's it's a really it's, it's an interesting sort of phenomenon and development. The, yeah, I would say by far the most interesting newspaper during the referendum campaign was the Sunday Herald, which was the only newspaper in Scotland that was that was nationalist, that was advocating a yes vote, a yes vote, and in a very kind of interesting sort of youthful way. I think Scottish nationalism is often is widely misunderstood down here. The real bedrock of Scottish nationalism is probably closer to sort of I don't know, Islington New Labour than it is to, 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 to really end, end, anything else comparable mm. in, in, in England. It's a, sort of, it's a sort of trendy metropolitan movement. The, Scott, the, the Sunday Herald really encapsulated that, and now they've, they've launched a daily paper. And I can't figure out whether it's an incredibly shrewd and quite cynical move to capture a market share or, or a really, really sensible thing to do or a really quite sort of worrying notion of journalism where the politics comes first, journalism as an advocate for politics rather than scrutiny mm. of politics. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely torn about this. I don't really know which way to go. The idea of a new newspaper launching with the blessing of the government party is slightly ominous, I would say. Um, there's also there's a strong current of thought in nationalist circles in Scotland that there was a sort of media conspiracy going on during the referendum, that the reason why all the papers came down as unionist was because they were being told to by distant proprietors in order to squash this kind of independence Mm. movement, rather than it being a rational choice made by rational editors thinking this was a bad idea. So this, this sort of slightly buys into that narrative. But then at the same time, it's a new newspaper. When was the last time we had a new newspaper? That's wonderful. And there's obviously a constituency for it, so I sort of wish it every success, I think. Roger Alton, what do you think? Um, I, it's I, it, a torn between these two things. I'm clearly a new newspaper. It's a thing to be encouraged. It gives work for journalists. It's, uh, there's a huge potential for new ideas. I think if it is a McPravda, clearly that's, it's not going to work because nobody's going to buy it. I mean, apart from a handful of sort of, um, you know, uh, SNP 
representatives around the place. And when there have been new newspapers, which there were in the 70s and in the 80s, set up sort of specifically to be left to, to be on the left broadly, mm. they they were sort of uh, they just didn't work. They came out, they were staggeringly boring, and off they went. It has the blessing of the SNP. The SNP is a set of views. Uh, most papers in, in Scotland and indeed in this country have a quite relatively obvious set of political views. Yeah. So it, the idea that uh, papers are sort of divorced from politics. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is clearly not true. But I think the central point that Hugo's making is that if it is directed to find... The Morning Star, for example, is a uh, mm. perfectly pleasant little paper, but, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, rush to the shops to go and buy it every day. And I, I think that is the great problem. I mean, the, great, the point about journalism has got to be fresh. You've got to be taking in what journalists should be doing is taking a, 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 a clear view of every single event that happens and, and saying what, what it's about, whether it matters who's good, who's bad, and, and you can't allow a set of political principles to govern you uh, first. So, I, I, I mean, I fear for it, but I'm very pleased that it started. I mean, the, the Sun, it's worth noting the Sunday Herald during the independence campaign did double its circulation pretty much by virtue of being the, the independence paper. So there is obviously a market there. And I think there's, I mean, there's also a market, a, again, a slightly worrying market in Scotland for people being told that they're right about stuff. You know, and I, I can sort of see a newspaper doing quite well simply by doing the exact opposite of challenging its readers and saying, yes, you're right about all of this. <laughs> keep, on, keep on going. You're, you're just right. But newspapers should be challenging their readers, as yeah. you say, there, as you imply. And uh, that's, that's, I mean, is, did the Morning, uh, the Morning Star did have quite good bits. Um, I'm trying to think of other very obvious political... But the Mirror is a very obvious Labour paper. You still like it and enjoy it and mm. buy it, and it's full of good but it, it, journalism. But it, 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 it reserves the right 
and does quite often come in and criticise yeah. the leaders. I suppose, yeah. Susie Jagger, that the, the test for this newspaper will be when something goes badly wrong for the SNP, when they do something that the, the country doesn't like, and we'll see then. Yes, yeah. and whether the paper wants to put on its front page a, very, a deeply critical piece. I mean, um, I, I think the, the paper sounds... Or a poll. Or a poll, yes. I mean, mm. I think it's very worrying, because, I mean, as you say, most newspapers have a political bent, but it's far healthier, surely, to have commentators within those newspapers who have who wear their, their political badge on their sleeve and then are prepared to criticise the, the, the party which to which they're, they're most sympathetic. I mean, for example, Phil Collins, you know, as you know, Blair's former speechwriter and, you know, one of our great commentators is more than happy and um, is more than um, willing to, to criticise the Labour Party. That is and, his job. And I always feel when I, when I speak to <laughs> Phil that actually I'm not talking to someone who is some, some kind of dreadful advocate of the Labour Party, but rather an insider, someone who knows what they're talking about, the personalities. And surely that's much healthier than having a newspaper which is saying we are effectively the mouthpiece of the SNP. Can I make say one tiny point, which is that, yeah. as, as Hugo suggested, I mean, there's a massive view on the left that uh, there are uh, distant proprietors ordering every single mm. sort of word, every single sentence that appears in, for example, the more, you know, the centre, right of centre press. Nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. And the rich variety of copy, particularly in the, uh, you know, in the news pages and the opinion pages, comes from every single area, you know, every single area of the political spectrum. The idea that we have a sort of homogenous press being told what to do, it is so preposterous, it makes you want to punch people. Do you, do you know, I, I once sat next, at a dinner, I once sat next to a really eminent media commentator who, who I shouldn't name, but, but was, Will, Mike, was Michael Wolfe. Um, <laughs> and um, and he, he, didn't, he didn't know who I was and he said to me, and we were talking about, he was talking about his, his book about Rupert Murdoch, and he said, of course Murdoch tells all his columnists what to write, and I let this go for a bit. And I said, I'm actually a columnist in the Times. And he goes, oh, well, he just tells, you know, the leader writer columnists what to write. And I said, I'm, I'm actually also a leader writer <laughs> for the Times. At which point he turned around and spoke to the other person and didn't say another word to me yeah. all night. So, yes, it is a widespread view. Yeah. Yes, very much so. And nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. So, yeah, cautious cautious optimism what, about this one then, who goes? I, I think so. Wind up. I yeah. think so. And, I mean, what, what I... What, the reason why I'm so torn about it is the best thing you can say about it is it's honest. You know, all newspapers do have political views and we like to tell ourselves that they have stemmed from, you know, sort of fierce intellectual debates sitting in leader conferences and all the rest of it and we've come down with a view. But, you know, there are reasons why the people who work at newspapers work at newspapers and you can generally predict which way each newspaper is going to go even if it is the process of a sort of... Inter if, even if it is the result of an intellectual process. And so in a way there's something quite refreshing with something launching off the bat going, this is where we're coming from. Right. Let's move south to Westminster. Um, it was an amazing political weekend, and uh, the Tory failure at, uh, at Rochester was somewhat overshadowed by the row uh, over the tweet by Emily Thornbury, in which she was seen to be rather condescending to people who live in houses with flags and a white van outside. This morning, we've seen that three opinion polls have Labour with a, an increased lead nationally. Uh, that may suggest that, um, that the public took from the weekend Ed Miliband sacking Emily Thornbury rather than what Thornbury did. But what do you think, Roger? Uh, I, I, whether the polls indicate that or that they, there are sort of higher anxieties about they want change, they don't necessarily like the coalition, I think that's much more like it. I think the class aspects of what's uh, happened with the whole Thornbury weekend is quite extraordinary and there's an amazing divide which ones I've been aware of myself ever since basically you can see that picture of the old Etonians in their toppers and the two little urchins looking at them from the 19 
1930s, which has seemed emblematic of some sort of um, British uh, snobbery on the one hand and, and um, insane resentment, uh, not necessarily insane, but certainly resentment on the other. And there's a fascinating piece by Rachel Sylvester in today's times talking about this class that permeates everything here from Downton to um, whatever, in contrast to what you've got on, uh, uh, for example, American TV. Uh, the other great issue seems to me that how many, how big is the working class? And I think Rachel makes a very good point that in 1964, the number of sort of working class voters was really quite high. I think it was sort of over 40 percent. The number of uh, working class voters when uh, Tony Blair got elected in uh, 1997 had fallen substantially and we will have fallen further. So does, if you like, a working class party, a union party as the Labour Party uh, was set up, does that have a future as a, 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 a party of uh, you know government on its own rather than a coalition and I think that is that could could be a problem what we've seen also I think from the these uh, this extraordinary few days with the gen, uh, well-built gentleman tattoos who has very much called the shots of the political debate for a little bit <laughs> is the ruthlessness of Ed, Ed Miliband who having uh, axed his brother to get to the top now axed old uh, Emily Thornberry who seems to be um, quite substantial union unit but does like a bit of bike riding axed her actually at the drop of a hat and she was his first um, I think she was the first person to sign his papers for for the leadership and so whatever else uh, you might say about Ed, ruthless is not, is not an issue. But there were two tiny other things that struck me. One was when he said, in his first reaction, he said, I've always argued that we should uh, fly the flag with pride. So hence, you know, the flagpole outside Ed's Respect. substantial Respect. unit. Respect. Substantial home in uh, Primus Hill, the, uh, the, the, uh, the um, St. George's Cross flying. And then asked what he felt about when he saw a white van. He said, rather than uh, there's a white van, he said, I feel respect. <laughs> <laughs> Hugo Rifkin, do you, what do you think? Do you think think that uh, the public likes ruthless leaders and is that uh, do they do you think the public would actually have some regard for Miliband for sacking Thornbury you know what I don't know I mean what what sort of baffles and sort of entices me about the whole Thornbury affair is the way it's gone complete circle is that she you know she she tweeted this photograph like that was widely interpreted as being sneering at sneering at Britain's working class, which I suppose it absolutely was. But then, in in the manner in which she's been condemned for it, there's been this sort of like pervasive assumption that to be working class is to be huge and covered in tattoos and have a white mm. van and, and have a house covered in flags, mm. which is of course like massively offensive for loads of people because most working class people don't have their houses covered in flags. I yeah. believe. I, I mean, the, as, as, the the notion of, of Miliband's ruthlessness, I think. The problem with it, I think he is ruthless, but he's ruthless in a sort of very sort of sort of sporadic, half-assed sort of way, if I can say that. That he's 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 ruthless, but you never get the sense there's any great vision behind the ruthlessness. He's not stamping down on people who dissent from his vision in any sort of way. He's stamping down on people when they become a bit embarrassing. And that's not really the sort of ruthlessness I, th just I would think that people admire. I don't know. Just to, to jump in, I think uh, that the ruthlessness issue is really interesting because right at the beginning with his, when he contested his brother, I remember talking to various um, Labour figures who said, you know, Susie, the, Labour, uh, the core Labour voters are just not going to understand a fight between two brothers because the Labour movement mm. at, its, at its core is about brotherhood. Yes. So if you're going to knife your brother in public, uh, you're immediately alienating what uh, the, the core voters whom you, you would expect to be able to take for granted. But, but what, I mean, was it ruthless when he knifed his brother or was it just sort of completely socially inept? I mean, I'm, I'm never convinced it really was a kind of sort of like, I will, I will crush, I will crush the, the, the boy I grew up with and whether it was just a kind of, 
oh, I've got myself in a slightly weird situation. Isn't this excruciating? Oh, look, I've destroyed your life. I, I agree thing. with you. I mean, I don't think he knew he'd knifed his brother until the, the very second the result was declared. Yeah. I mean, he he went into that, I think, went into that campaign actually not really expecting to win. But as things developed during the campaign, and of course we know it came down to a, a fraction that he that he won in the end, I think he probably thought, oh, my God, when the result came yeah. through, what but, have I done? I mean, I'd be very interested in Phil's view on this, is the extent to which... The, uh, the the leadership contest between him and his brother, and I know we're, we're you know we're looking backwards, but the extent to which actually it should have been done, there should have been a deal done in private, which had been brokered by a senior Labour figure, and that by the time we got to the contest, so many of the the, the big Labour figures had been alienated or who who had left, and that it's really a sign of the paucity of talent within the Labour Party at the moment that there wasn't that kind of figure to say you cannot go head to head in public because yeah. the damage will be the, astonishing. Uh, probably the only person who could have done that with somebody somebody like Blair or Brown they and at the time Brown was damaged and Blair also damaged there was certainly nobody around in the current ranks who who I think could have done it I don't think Miliband would have listened Ed Miliband would have listened mm -hmm. to their entreaties I'm pretty sure that people like Ed Balls would have done a happy deal with with David Miliband I could have seen a situation where David Miliband would have been leader, Ed Balls, shadow yeah. chancellor. That would have been a situation that the Labour Party would probably have accepted. But um, I'm answering the questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, can Roger. Ask one, one, can I ask one more question? Which is, is, actually, is there a future for a party which defines itself as a party of the working class when you have a dwindling, if you like, uh, sector which might be working class, not least because of the changing nature of employment, huge amount of sort of high-tech development, multiple careers, very le uh, much less manufacturing and so on and so forth. Is there a future? For but that's why party? we don't hear Ed Miliband uh, talking about the working class. He yeah, talks about yeah. everyday people, everyday doesn't he, Roger? He I mean, that's his phrase, everyday people. And, uh, yeah. He's trying to widen the, um, the working class beyond what we consider the working class to be. And interestingly, this poll this morning, when you narrow it down to white working class, which is slightly loaded maybe, that's where UKIP beats Labour. We had a poll yesterday on the Redbox website, if I may throw this in, which was asking the question, who better supports working people? And Labour won that by a mile. Labour won had double the score of UKIP on working people. It's different from white working class. That Quite said interesting. Though, that yeah. said, though, isn't it interesting that actually, aside from polls, that um, we're, it, we're in the lucky position to have had two by-elections, rather three, I think, in the last, last few months, where you actually can see that take the real temperature of the of political sentiment. And in Clacton, it did, and the extent of the damage to Labour was not made explicit because what what is suspected is that it's the liberal, it's the disaffected liberal Democrat voter who actually held up much of the Labour vote. And I wonder what will play out in the in the general election is that we will see the real damage um, that's being um, that, 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 that Labour is about to suffer because there's, there's other movements at, at, at work. Well, again, I think probably that's why we did see that action over the weekend that, you know, some people criticise Miliband for. Well, I think we shall wind it up there. Thank you for listening. For more information, please head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash comment central where you can read more. If you haven't already, please sign up to the Redbox email newsletter, thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. And please remember to subscribe by searching The Times on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.